Welcome to Commonwealth Climate Talks with the League of Conservation Voters, an interview podcast seeking to highlight activists, organizers, and community leaders championing conservation and environmental justice. Welcome to Commonwealth Climate Talks with the League of Conservation Voters, an interview podcast seeking to highlight activists, organizers, and community leaders championing conservation and environmental justice. So uh, welcome, Judy. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Colin. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, it's, you know, a beautiful March day while we're recording. Uh, I, I wish we could record outside, but, um, you know, uh, a, a lot of wind noise would probably happen. So I, I will have to deal with looking out my window at the beautiful day today. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, you have uh, been volunteering about as long as uh you know, I've been alive almost. Uh, you've been you've been involved uh, um, in in activism for truly a, a huge amount of time, uh, and um, uh, are just you. You're about in every organization that I know of in, in Hampton Roads. So <laughs> this is uh, true. <laughs> uh, great to have you around. Um, and I just wanted to know uh, what originally brought you to being politically active, uh, especially around the environment. It was probably when I went back to school, back to college, Old Dominion University in the 90s uh, for my second career. And I had a professor named Jim English. He was in charge of the environmental health program and he was also the faculty leader of the environmental health club. So he got me interested in the club and it was very active. We got involved with Earth Day way long time ago in the 1990s and uh, cleanups, beach cleanups, that sort of thing. And I also got involved in politics at that time. I think it was about then that I was uh, introduced to the Sierra Club, probably at some kind of an outdoor event. They table and get volunteers that way. And the Sierra Club is very politically active. So I, I got involved with the Sierra Club back then in the 90s as well. Yeah. And uh, uh, definitely they've, you know, uh, been around for a while. And and I've heard, of, I've heard and read a lot about uh, uh, Jim English. I know he's, uh, he's always been a big figure in, in uh, kind of local community activism. Uh, yes. And uh, did things like uh, organizing the Adopt the Street program for students at ODU and, and a lot of uh, great programs like that. Yes, uh, Environmental Improvement Council of Norfolk. Yep, he's been very active in the community. A good inspiration. Yeah, a good role model <laughs> for the students. And uh, I guess uh, since you've you've been around to uh, see so much of it, um, uh, you know, I know it's it's easy to kind of think about like um, maybe what's changed over the past thirty years. But um, what do you think some of our biggest victories uh, as climate activists over you know since the nineties have been? Like where where do you think that we've really succeeded? Uh, well, we do still have a long way to go, but we have had some victories uh, recently. We we saw the Atlantic Coast Pipeline uh, project abandoned, so that was going to be a pipeline to pipe natural gas and we didn't want to 
have more infrastructure for fossil fuels. We want to eliminate fossil fuels. So several groups, I think, uh, were a part of that. But Sierra Club was a big part of the uh, of uh, bit trying to defeat the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Sierra Club also defeated the Mattapanai Reservoir. I don't know if you, that was one of the first campaigns I worked with them on. They wanted to flood the Mattapanai, the, Indi- the Indian Reservation for a reservoir for Newport News. And if you fight something long enough, like the ACP and like the Mattapanai Reservoir, Sometimes they find they don't really need it. And that's what happened with Newport News giving up on the Mattapanai Reservoir as well. Uh, Some other victors. Of course, there's been landmark bills since the 1970s, the Clean Water Act, Clean Air, NEPA, and Endangered Species. But I'm especially um, interested in the Migratory Bird Act that the previous administration weakened so a lot of these uh, bills are going to be strengthened under the new administration. So getting Joe Biden elected was definitely a big victory for conservation. And you've probably heard of the uh, 30 by 30, 30% of the land protected by 30, 30. So I think Joe Biden is going to be great for, for conservation in the U.S., uh, definitely. I know at LCV, we are getting ready to do a big push around uh, a lot of the, the Build Back Better program, and especially around the clean energy and uh, 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 clean manufacturing aspects of it. And so uh, very, very excited to see see where that legislation goes once we can, we can get our hands on it. Um, and yeah, the uh, uh, to your point about uh, having to fight things long enough until people realize that that we don't really need them. Uh, I remember I did a little volunteering towards that the end of the the Atlantic Coast Pipeline um, uh, fight, and uh, uh, thanks to people at the Sierra Club getting me plugged in on it. And yeah, it like that was you know a compressor station, I guess that we were fighting here specifically in a in a neighborhood in Chesapeake and. Um, you know, the people who lived in those communities have been fighting for years to stop that. And, mm-hmm. you know, all it took was show, like fighting long enough for, for you know, uh, the, the pipeline to, to move on and think of something else to, to help that community out. So, yeah. Thank goodness we have groups like the Sierra Club who go to court. That's what it takes a lot of times is enough court cases to stall the project. And, yeah, you have to have... Uh, lawyers <laughs> and money to pay the lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's good that we have organizations that can help bridge that gap uh, right. to, to, you know, small communities. Um, right. Uh, what, uh, what do you think you mentioned though, that, you know, we do have a long way to go though. What are, what do you think are some of the, the biggest hurdles that we're going to have to tackle uh, in our continued fight against, uh, you know, climate change and convers- and for conservation? Well, we did, um, Sierra Club, again, had a Beyond Coal campaign, so they were successful in getting several coal plants, coal-powered plants, um, shut down in the state. But now we have to work on fracking and natural gas, which is uh, also a fossil fuel. People don't think about how much methane uh, escapes from those those fossil fuels, uh, mining and 
piping and using natural gas. It's very polluting and methane is a very strong greenhouse gas. So that's one area we have to work on. Um, of course, in general, we just are not very sustainable in our practices. And I think our youngsters need to listen to people like Greta Thunberg. I'm not sure if you know about Greta, but oh, she's yeah, been <laughs> speaking up to her generation, trying to inform them that our generation has not done a very good job at all on uh, with our business models. Uh, we're just not living in a sustainable fashion, especially the United States in particular and those high-income countries where we've got a very high carbon footprint in this country per capita. So that's something we, we really need to do better on is sustainability. We're not gonna we're not leaving the world in a state that the future generations will be able to enjoy the same quality of life, um, whether it be being able to enjoy nature. Uh, we're polluting way too much. We're creating way too much waste. Our generation, my older generation, has not uh, been able to come to grips with waste management. We've done a very poor job of that, plastics in particular. And we're leaving a very polluted planet for the younger generation. The oceans are contaminated with plastic. The land is contaminated with plastic. We're landfilling way too much plastic. So one, one thing we could do is make the manufacturers more responsible for for managing the waste right now the burden really falls on the cities so we most of the plastic ends up in the landfill and we're not holding the manufacturers of the plastic or of the products responsible just a, a for instance is i feel guilty eating yogurt because that <laughs> container is not recyclable at all and the manufacturers know it's not recyclable, so it ends up in landfill and pollution. It's pollution, basically. Land, we, we're going to end up with huge amounts of landfill, and we simply have to start thinking in the long term. What, what kind of a world are we leaving for the younger generations? Yeah, and I I totally like I totally understand that. I used to I used to work at a restaurant for a long time and thinking about how you know, how much plastic something comes in, you know, mm -hmm. uh, a, a cup of yogurt is already in a plastic container and then that's going to come in a cardboard box that's probably wrapped up in plastic and that's going to be on a pallet that's probably also going to be wrapped up in plastic and and it's just uh packaging, yes, yeah. <laughs> packaging is a big problem. Yep. Yeah. And recycling, we're not doing a very good job of recycling. A couple of years ago, China stopped taking our our waste. They said, we don't want your junk anymore because that's what it boiled down to. We were just shipping them junk and they said, no more. We're trying to establish a circular economy. So that's something I'm big on also is what's called a circular economy, trying to reuse Reduce, reuse, recycle is really not working very well, especially not for plastics. 
uh, well, I think that's the thing that my generation probably uh, wasn't didn't take to heart enough is that, uh, you know, it's it's easy to point to recycling as as the, the big term, but really it should be the last step. Uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And repair, make uh, computers or cell phones. Uh, think of all the computers and cell phones that get thrown away each year because those manufacturers are not really thinking long term. They're expecting people to get a new cell phone every couple years. So yeah. <laughs> we're a throwaway society and it's just not sustainable. I mean, if you look at, we live on a planet, it's a finite, we have finite resources, we have finite energy, uh, finite uh, fossil fuels. Probably the, the sun is relatively infinite. <laughs> uh, the wind might be relatively infinite too, but certainly fossil fuels are finite and all the metals and the, the glass that we manufacture, you've got to realize that we cannot just keep growing and using up these resources and polluting our natural environment forever. It, it's not sustainable. And yeah, I, I, and another thing that's not sustainable is our food system. It's tremendous amount of fertilizers are needed to sustain our current food system and pesticides and herbicides that are killing our honeybees and our other pollinators and our butterflies. So it's just not sustainable what we're doing with our food system either. I agree. And there's a, you know, there, there's a lot of good movements going on around things like no-till and, and, uh, you know, completely organic use farms. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's got to come down to, uh, some top down level stuff of, of making sure that, uh, you know, even food distribution systems work. Exactly. <laughs> yep. I agree with you. It's going to take some top down <laughs> because consumers, I mean, there's only so much consumers can do. It's going to take some policy from from our leaders, our national and global leaders. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, not to change the subject too much, uh, but I did want to talk about uh, your academic career. Um, you, you know, uh, I always hear you say that uh, uh, you consider yourself a lifelong college kid. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, uh, that's that passion for education is is uh, really admirable and, and a thing that I see in and just, uh, uh, you know, people working in, in environmental activism a lot. Uh, and uh, what's it what's it like to go uh, back to school uh, later in life? Uh, you know, you've mentioned that, you know, you've you you bring a lot of experience to the table, but you learn a lot from uh, the younger generations that, that you're learning alongside, too. I do. They're very technologically savvy. <laughs> and that was the hardest part is um, keeping up with the technology and I to be frank, I haven't kept up, but going back to school has helped me try to keep up anyway, technologically. <laughs> I'm better off than many 65-year-olds, thanks to, to college. Uh, I, I guess my motivation has been nature. I just love nature and plants and animals and all the way down to frogs and turtles, especially <laughs> butterflies. So. Yeah. So that's been my my motivation and sustainability is really what I've been learning about and loving to learn as long as you are really interested in what you're learning and you love learning about it then then uh, that's kept me going through the coursework and through there's 
no uh, interdisciplinary program at ODU, so I've been kind of making up my own inter <laughs> interdisciplinary doctorate program by taking classes in all kinds of uh, different disciplines, uh, public administration, geography, like weather, climate, and society, um, political science. They have a class called uh, the, the Politics of Climate Change. And of course, my major, which is engineering management, I turned just about every course I've taken into <laughs> something about climate change. And my papers, when, once you get to the doctorate level, you don't really have to take tests anymore so much as write papers. So yeah. <laughs> every paper has been about um, has been about climate change. I've made it into climate change, even though ODU is uh, active locally in terms of having a, a forum where they talk about resilience, which really means flood resilience, because as you know, Norfolk floods many days. It doesn't oh, yeah. even take a hurricane. It doesn't take uh, heavy precipitation. It just takes a, a particularly high tide and you get street flooding. So that's really what started my PhD program was street flooding and how do we cope with street flooding. And then I learned that street flooding is caused by sea level rise and sea level rise is caused by climate change or global warming. So the warming of the oceans expands, water expands when it warms and also uh, the glaciers melt due, due to global warming and that makes the sea levels rise and we're in a particularly vulnerable spot in Norfolk because we also have subsidence where, where we've been withdrawing water from our aquifer and not replacing it. So the land has actually been sinking relative to the sea. So that's caught, that combined with global warming has caused quite a lot of street flooding. And it's just going to get worse as global warming gets worse. Oh, yeah. Like I know the, the, Flooding isn't nearly as bad in Virginia Beach where I'm at, but like, uh, I think, uh, I don't know if it's true or not, but I remember when, when I first moved to the, this area of Virginia Beach hearing that town center sinks two centimeters a year, uh, because of, of things like the, the aquifer not having water in it. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's definitely sobering, um, uh, to kind of think about, uh, you know, how interconnected everything is, but I think that that interdisciplinary focus of, of being able to approach things from, you know, uh, I mean, you have a, a degree in, in chemistry and a master's in health sciences, and you're pr pursuing a PhD in engineering. Like it, it does speak to how interconnected and how many different problems we have to tackle and how many different solutions we're going to need for all of them. <laughs> Exactly. We need solutions from all different angles. But w the main thing we need is to keep talking about climate change because a lot of people don't want to believe it and uh, they don't have time to worry about it, to be frank. They're just trying to make a living or keep food on the table, so they're not paying attention. Well, sadly, it does seem like it has to come knocking at people's doors for them to to start looking at it. Uh, but, uh, you know, the more we talk about it, the more that people have to confront it. Um, 
Right. And hopefully we don't run into situations like I, I know a lot of people in the agricultural community took it took seeing, you know, all of the the devastating floods in Idaho the past couple of years um, or not Idaho, Idaho, Iowa, excuse me, um, to to kind of, you know, understand the the varied effects that climate change is going to have. Uh, and hopefully we can continue to convince people that this is a problem we need to tackle before, uh, you know, Norfolk floods over or. Uh, you know, something else cataclysmic happens. <laughs> right. Hopefully yeah. we can find some some solutions where first we stop with the carbon pollutions, <laughs> stop polluting, uh, putting carbon dioxide into the air and methane and uh, other greenhouse gases, but also find a way to, to sequester the carbon. Of course, trees do that naturally for us. Yeah. So we're we need to plant more trees and stop deforestation because we're burning our our tropical forests at an alarming rate and even in this country we destroy forests for development. I see it happening in my own town. <laughs> trees uh, in Chesapeake City, trees disappearing because we want to build another grocery store or another doctor's office. But that has to change. Something has to change with the trees because they're our, our natural buffer against climate change. And so when you destroy tropical forests like in Brazil or in Indonesia, it's actually a triple whammy on the climate. You, you lose the carbon sequestration and it actually puts more carbon into the air when you burn uh, a tree or a forest, just like when you burn fossil fuels. So it's the burning of carbon. We we need to start planting more forests instead of burning forests. Absolutely. Um, and uh, speaking of, of solutions and carbon, I know a thing that you've been working on with the Citizens Climate Lobby um, has been uh, this their program for energy innovation and a carbon dividend act, yes. uh, which is all around carbon fees and carbon dividends, um, which uh, is, it, um, I guess, on the surface appears a little bit more complicated than it is. But would you mind kind of walking me through exactly what a carbon fee is? Yes. So it's a gradually increasing price on carbon pollution. We know exactly what uh, the different sources of carbon uh, fossil fuels do in terms of carbon pollution. So we know the carbon content of coal and the carbon content of natural gas and the carbon content of um, oil. So a carbon fee goes on the producers or the, the, um, those who bring the oil into the country at the point of entry into the country or at the, at the oil well or at the carbon, I'm sorry, at the coal mine, the carbon content of the, prod, of the fossil fuel as it goes into the economy is taxed at the point of entry, whether it be at the port or at the oil field, we add a, a tax to it basically. So let's say oil is coming into the country from another country. It will be taxed unless that country has an oil tax or a carbon tax of its own. So there's also a border adjustment. And then that 
that tax or that fee is increased gradually each year so that eventually it does start making fossil fuels more expensive. The way to decrease use of anything is to make it more expensive. So it will become more expensive. Gasoline at the pump will be more expensive and heating oil will be more expensive. And yes, those costs will be passed on to the consumer. So the dividend is a really important part of carbon fee and dividend. It will be, the dividend is applied to all households in a similar fashion that the stimulus checks were, including um, dividend for children. So the parents get a full dividend check each month and it doesn't matter how much you've used, it doesn't matter how much fossil fuel you've used, everybody gets the same amount of dividend. So it will mean more to someone of a lower income, someone of a higher income, maybe a $300 dividend check each month doesn't mean that much, but to a, a lower income person, it would mean a $300 check in the mail or in the bank account each month would mean something. So I think they've calculated that 70% of the um, U.S. population would come out ahead with under the carbon fee and dividend system. Yeah. And it does give people more agency in what they're going to do with that money. It, it kind of, you know, if somebody feels encouraged to, well, I'm going to get taxed on buying gasoline at the pump, uh, or I guess well, the gas is going to be more expensive because it's being taxed at, at the refinery or at the at, at the the import or wherever. Um, but I'm going to take that money I'm going to get and I'm going to use that to invest in an electric car. Or I'm going to use that to invest in better insulation for my house so I don't have to heat my house as much. And I think that's that's what's going to be important in helping driving not just people stopping the use of of carbon uh fossil fuels but like really really embracing like new sustainable things and embracing you know uh, uh, uh things that are they're going to make it so that we don't need to use electricity as much so that we don't need to constantly be burning all of this carbon constantly mm -hmm. and it's called a, a market-based solution it's made to to equalize what are known as externalities so far the fossil fuel companies have been allowed to pollute, as you know, the, the huge spills in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, the land has been polluted by the oil industries and the, the mountaintop removal of coal has left streams and, and uh, the land really a mess. They haven't been made to, they haven't been held accountable for for the mess they've made, but there all there's also the carbon pollution. That's a huge externality. They know it's causing global warming. That really is beyond dispute. <laughs> so they really need to be held accountable for for that too. Is they're called externalities, things that are not considered in the price of a gallon of gasoline that you pay at the pumps. They've really been getting away with with a lot of pollution, both land, water, and air pollution. Yeah, because that's the thing that when when we talk about 
you know, air quality and the need for more more uh, public transportation and, and limiting the amount of, of cars driving through neighborhoods to make, you know, air health better. Nobody's, uh, you know, when, when you go to the pump, uh, the, the increased costs that it's going to be for people to deal with, you know, lung cancer later in life or respiratory issues isn't factored into the, into, you know, the cost of gas. Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, with, uh, uh, with a, a carbon fee and dividend system, uh, maybe maybe it will at least be a little more just in the way that that it works out. <laughs> exactly, make the polluter pay. It's similar to the way uh, we're gaining a little steam in um, the plastic, the area of plastics, making the manufacturers pay for the pollution downstream. So far, the the cities and the the taxpayers in the cities have had to pay for the recycling system that isn't really working. We pay for the, the landfilling. So make the manufacturers of the plastic start paying for, for the cost to the towns and the cities and the, the landfilling and the recycling that's only 10% recycling anyway for plastics. <laughs> In a similar way, the polluters of of carbon pollution would would pay with this carbon fee. Absolutely, uh, you know we we need to have uh, a holistic approach to the way that the, these problems uh, arise because you know um, we can't just solve one of them, and none of them can be solved in just one way. <laughs> yes, yeah, a multifaceted approach. <laughs> Something it, though is needed drastically, and this gradually increasing fee on carbon is pretty drastic. It goes up pretty fast to a hundred dollars per ton of carbon. Right now, British Columbia is the closest thing. Uh, the, the country of Canada is ahead of us in this. Um, and British Columbia has had a carbon tax or a carbon fee for, I think, a decade. But theirs only went up to $30 a ton. We need to get above $30 to really make a difference on, on the economy and to really turn around the use of fossil fuels, and I think the um, I think the fossil fuel companies are expecting this. They're expecting a price on carbon, and I think they're um, they're ready to start changing their ways. I think. I I think uh, something that really you know lends credence to that is uh, you know uh, LCV was really involved in the clean excuse me the clean car. Uh, legislation uh, in Virginia this year, and uh, you know it was uh, it was very telling to see you know car companies say that oh you know this this legislation is too much you know we we can't switch all over to electric vehicles it's not feasible. Uh, meanwhile, at the same time, releasing statements like uh, Ford came out and said that all of their vehicles are going to be electric vehicles by twenty thirty five. So and I think Chevy too. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, so I, I definitely agree that I think they know that change is coming. Um, and they, they're probably going to complain the whole way, but, right, um, right. <laughs> Absolutely. They, they're not going to give up easily, <laughs> but, uh, I guess that's, that's what makes sure that, uh, the, the legislation is fair and balanced is that, uh, both sides have to heart, fight really hard over it. Uh, <laughs> good point. Good point. And yeah. <laughs> we do have the environmental justice aspects to think about too. So it is good to have lots of debate and have all the voices at the table. Absolutely. Um, because when it, when it comes down to it, the, 
uh, you know, like you said that, uh, you know, um, uh, 70% of the people that are, that would see dividends from a carbon fee program are, are going to, you know, make out with more money than they had before. Uh, it does really speak to the fact that, you know, they're, they're, the majority of Americans are not using so much gasoline or so much carbon, um, that, that, you know, uh, they couldn't stand. They could stand to use a little bit less, but it's the it's the bigger producers, it's it's the uh, the manufacturers themselves that are they're really using a lot of of you know burning a lot of of coal for power and and using a lot of gas and and that kind of stuff. That uh, what it what it passes on uh, is going to help everybody and and help people at the 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 lowest rungs and at the in the most marginalized communities first, and that'll that'll really help. <laughs> So again, uh, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk with me. Uh, love to have someone with your experience on. Uh, and, uh, you know, I hope I get to keep working with you for years to come. <laughs> Same here, Colin. Yeah. Nice to meet you and talk with you. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today. Uh, you can find some of the organizations that Judy works with at citizensclimatelobby.org and sierraclub.org slash Virginia slash Chesapeake dash Bay. For the month of March, we are urging Virginia residents to submit comments opposing the construction of the Lambert Compression Station, which is a key piece of infrastructure for the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Uh, you can check out the show notes for more information regarding that. You can check out VALCV.org for more info and for more up-to-date climate actions. Our theme music is by Andrew Giotto, and our podcast is produced by me, Colin. Anyways, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day, and have a great week.